Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the second chapter of the Old Testament book of Haggai. It's page 668 in our church Bibles. 668. In just a moment, I'm going to begin reading chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to verse 9. This is the Word of God. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the Word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I coveted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. It never gets old, the repetition of that phrase. It's just, it's so purposeful. Okay, well, let's pray. And ask God for his help. Father, Christ with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ when we lie down, Christ when we sit down, Christ when we rise, Christ in in the heart of every person who thinks of us, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of us. Christ in every eye that sees us, Christ in every ear that hears us. Father, make this so in us, and please give us your grace, your power, and your truth in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. You and you alone, you are our assurance every morning, and you and you alone, our defender every night. And we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, listen. If we simply point out a person's sin without pointing them to Christ, then if we do that, in reality, we are no different than Satan. Okay, so that bears repeating, doesn't it? If we simply point out a person's sin without pointing them to Christ, then in reality, we are no different than Satan. 
And this is especially true in preaching. In fact, on preaching, Jesus gave this charge before his ascension to the disciples. This comes from Luke chapter 24. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, this is fundamental, and I have to tell you this. The verse I quoted from was written in what is called the aorist passive infinitive. And all that means is this, is when Jesus said what he said, he is saying this at every point in time, okay? So this is without limit. At every point in time, when preaching is taking place in his name, repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name will take place. In other words, in Christian preaching, in Christ's name, the gospel will always be proclaimed. And the gospel, as you know, at its root is good news about a gracious God who sent his only son to save people who need their sins forgiven and therefore need to be saved. Because God wills to save. This salvation plan, 2 Timothy tells us, was established Before the beginning of time. Okay, why? Well, one, God is a gracious God. Two, because we humans are too fallen to save ourselves. Three, we're too flawed to keep our promises. Four, yeah, you can tell us what to do. But we don't always do it. Therefore, there's going to have to be an intervention of radical grace from God himself. And this radical intervention of grace has happened. It's happened only in Christ as God, think of it, God has intervened in his world and he's offered salvation only one way through the death of his son on the cross. So if the preaching is pointing out sin without pointing what Jesus has done to rescue us from it, then in reality, okay, you're no different than any other religion, but the worst part is that you're no different than Satan. This is John Caloquin, 18th century Protestant preacher. Listen to what he says. When a person is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them by the belief of his love revealed in the gospel, when they fear God because of his power and justice and not in awe of God because of his goodness, when they regard God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when they contemplate God rather as a terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, they show that they are under the dominion or at least under the dominance of the law and of a legal, he said legal spirit, we would call that a legalistic spirit. In other words, they're trying to save themselves through works which are fueled by their fear of God. So there's no confession, There's no repentance. There's certainly no rejoicing. It's all just human action. Now, if you're listening, that means a lot. But it specifically means this side of heaven, Jesus wants people to know routinely through the preaching of his word that they need to be forgiven, that they can be forgiven, that God wants them to be forgiven, has arranged for it, and he's done it through Christ and his finished work on the cross. He wants people to know routinely to repent and believe. And if they are in Christ, Jesus wants people to know routinely that they are forgiven and routinely to repent. Because, and listen carefully, 
The only sin that we can conquer in this life is forgiven sin. I mean, do you understand that? I mean, no other religion in the world offers this. The only sin that you can conquer in life is a sin which has been forgiven in Christ. Sin, think of it, sin which has already been forgiven. So when you think about that, this is nothing like a sermon. Like some of us kind of grew up in this. At the end of the sermon, hey, would anyone like to become a Christian? Or would anyone like to rededicate their life? This is not that. It's far more. Now, in all of that, we have tied ourselves to this book of Haggai, Old Testament, Sunday by Sunday. And so, I've been kind of helping us week by week by, you know, my long introductions, purposely though, to understand there's a fundamental rule of interpretation that needs to be said here. It was established by Jesus and the apostles, and essentially it is this. When we come to the Old Testament, and we're interpreting the Old Testament, the earlier always needs to be interpreted in light of the latter and the fuller. Okay, that is something like this. There's a biblical revelation. There's a biblical story. Beginning in Genesis 1, it's developing um, chapter by chapter, book by book. More of God is being revealed in the Old Testament. And more of his purposes are being revealed to his people. So if you have a look down at verse 6, that's for example there. He reveals more of himself. And this means that the New Testament always completely interprets the Old Testament. Now, I imagine some of you have sent in an Old Testament study and all you did was stay in the Old Testament. Very discouraging. Very can be works-based. The New Testament always has the final and the complete meaning of the old. All right, listen to Alistair Begg on this. He said, we find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Gospels, he's revealed. In the book of Acts, he's preached. In the epistles, he's explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. So think of it like this. Okay, what if a person is reading the Bible, brand new to it, and they read a little bit of the Old Testament, something like this. This is Leviticus 19.19. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. All right, so they read that. And then they say something like, okay, your God says not to wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Weird, right? So why should we believe the Bible is actually the word of God? But stuff like that is in it. Help me understand. Now, as God would have it, guess what I got to do yesterday? I spent about one hour talking to just a beautiful young lady who had that exact same question. In fact, she had some great questions. She said, were there other religions before Christianity? She said, what about these strange passages? She said, what about the end and death? She said something like, you know, a lot of times, and this is her words, a lot of times when I, when I hear preaching, it's like, gosh, these guys are always mad about stuff that's happening in America. So I had an answer. Thank God an answer for all those things. So the question like, okay, what about these strange passages? What would you say to her? Well, this is what I said to her. The first thing I said is, God bless you for answering, asking such a great question. And so what I began to tell her about progressive revelation in the Old Testament and how it came final and full in the person of Jesus Christ and the new and how Christ fulfilled the civil law, which is what that text was, and how Christ alone filled the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and how Christ alone fulfilled the ceremonial law. And therefore, the Old Testament is to be interpreted always in light of Jesus' fulfillment that we learn of in the New. 
And so for loving reasons, those strange passages, that was good for them. It was good for them because God is a good and gracious God. But now in the New Testament, in these times, you know what? You can mix and match your clothing material now. (laughs) It's okay. This is Jesus, John chapter 5, verse 39. You study the scriptures. Now Now he's referring to the Old Testament. You study the Old Testament diligently because you think that in them you can have eternal life. But then he goes on to say, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. They bear witness to me. So whatever Jesus is saying, he's saying this, the Old Testament is about me. They preach me in order, ready, so that repentance, forgiveness of sins can be preached in my name. Right? In, in other words, he's saying, my gospel is in the embodiment of the Old Testament. You study it diligently, you will find that there. And so now, some 2,000 years removed from that moment in the preaching of the Word, every time you expound the Bible, any text, old or new, you are not finished. You are not finished. So says Jesus, until you demonstrate how it shows that we cannot save ourselves. That only Jesus can. This means we must preach Christ from every text, every sermon, every time. The gospel, every time. And not, you know, just kind of like, as opposed to some kind of general, inspirational, moralizing, or condemnation sermons, right? The condemnation sermons, our country is doomed unless. You know, you, you, I just want to say, stop. How do you know that? How do you know that? Are you like Old Testament prophet now? Are you, are you going to, do you have a value on the mercy and grace of God? Now you yourself can quantify it. And I say all this, not because, not just because it's true. It is true, but it is necessary. You leave here and you have your studies. You leave here and you hear other things. Therefore, an Old Testament text like this, which People have and some will forge into a kind of, you know, you're not putting God first sermon and just leave it there. What are you going to do now? No. Verses like this, chapters like this, is meant to drive us deeper and deeper in assurance. Deeper and deeper in our understanding of just how loving God is. Deeper and deeper into the essential nature of the gospel. Deeper in repentance. Deeper in the beauty and the magnificence of Jesus Christ. His death. His resurrection. Deeper in our obedience now rooted in love for him. And deeper knowing Christ. I'm just going to say it like, I would say it like my best friend ever. He's more... But he's not less. So here, 500 years before the birth of of Christ, Haggai begins to point to that one, the only one who can save. Verse 9, do you see him there? The, The prince of peace. All right, so this is our third point. We started three weeks ago. The word of God was preached, and we did that. And last week, the grace of God was given, and now the peace of God is promised. And what we have is three little subpoints: salvation, motivation, and revelation. And you know what? We're, we're not going to get to revelation. <laughs> I'm going to save it, Lord willing, for next time. Number one, salvation. Now, as you look at the text, you can see the salvation story in the Old Testament working its way. Just think with me. God's people are in the promised land right here. They were going their own way. They, they were following their own mind, and it's ruining them. 
And because of this, their sins have no place to be propitiated, right? You understand? There's no place for them to take their sins, to be forgiven, because they didn't see the need of a temple. Uh, they didn't see that that temple was absolutely necessary so that sins could be dealt with and God's presence enjoyed. And so, at first, they disobey. But God, right? It's one of the great buts in the Bible. But God. But God, in an act of sheer grace, comes. No one asks for Haggai. God sends Haggai. God sends his salvation message through his preaching. And Haggai preaches, and he points them right away to their sin. That's in the opening verses of chapter 1. He points them out to the implications of their sins. That's the middle part of chapter 1. He points to their salvation from their sin. You've got to repent, and you've got to rebuild. That, that's verse 13 of chapter 1. And then God moves And he tells them, I am with you. And with that, they are acted upon by God's grace. That was our talk last time. And the temple begins to be rebuilt. Now, the day would come once again, once that temple's rebuilt, that their sins can be atoned for exactly the way God said. Substitution, blood sacrifice, bulls and goats at the altar. And loved ones, when you understand that correctly, doesn't that sound in principle like how you, how you were saved if you belonged to Jesus Christ. We were all going our own way. We were following our own mind. In fact, the New Testament is like far worse. We were following the, the kingdom of the evil one. The, 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 this is Ephesians 2, the evil one. Then God sent his word. Somehow through preaching, through a conversation, we heard the gospel. And by grace, we responded. And in Jesus Christ, we have the embodiment of the Old Testament. We learn that we are freely justified. We read it perfectly this morning. Freely forgiven. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us through his blood sacrifice on the cross. And now we have perpetual peace with God. Because Jesus perpetually stands before the throne. And you know what? That salvation pattern is all through the Old Testament. One example, before we go to our next point, and it comes from a guy named Alec Moyer. He's a very old professor. He's just outstanding. He wrote a book a long time ago called the Lo- uh, Loving the Old Testament. One book, one God, one story. So he's in a context where he's a bu- with a bunch of preachers and teachers. And he asked them this question. He said, all right, I want you to imagine how an Israelite under Moses would have given their testimony to how they escaped Egypt. Okay, so how were you rescued from your slavery from Egypt? And listen to what he said. Okay, they would say something like this. We were in a foreign land in bondage. We were under the sentence of death. But our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. That would be Moses. We trusted the word and promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he led us out. Now we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet. But we have the law to guide us and through blood sacrifice in the tabernacle. We also have his presence. We have his forgiveness in our midst. Sound familiar? So he will stay with us as we get to our true country and our everlasting home. Then Dr. Moyer said this. Now think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word because the Israelites had been saved by grace. They believed God. They believed God. And if you're thinking, so it is with us. And the people in Haggai's day, they were equally being saved by grace. 
And that is God, how God saves. That is salvation. That's some point number one, salvation. I'm going to quote what we read already, Romans 5. Since you have been justified through faith, you have peace with God through, and here it is, our Lord Jesus Christ. He won't change. So your peace doesn't have to change. Second point, motivation. So if your Bible's open, you'll see it there. Uh, verse 1, on the 21st day of the seventh month, you see the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor there, to Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them. And listen, these are really interesting questions. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it, see, does it not seem to you like nothing? All right, so the date actually is October 17th, 520 BC, 27 days after the start of their rebuild. And in that time, God, for the third time, sends his word through the prophet Haggai to his people. Okay, so they're four weeks into their building project. And it seems like, you know, they're confronted with a fairly human problem, which is essentially this. Where they are at now, visually, seems like nothing. But back then, what was? It seems so much better. Okay? That's what happens when you just look with your eyes, but it's a, it's a human thing. What, what, what was happening in front of them now, it just seemed like nothing. And, but back then, that was so much better. And, 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 of course, some people remember what was back then, and they probably spoke about, you know, back then we had, back then we had. And the temple was basically in ruins for 70 years. And they are dealing with something, I think, that most of us have dealt with. You probably would want to describe it as kind of like nostalgia. And so nostalgia is coming to a moment in our lives where something is taking place now, and you know what? Not great. And it leaves us longing for what was, longing for, for back then. Now bear with me. That actual word, nostalgia, it was invented by a Swiss doctor in the late 1600s, and it was a way that he used to diagnose his patients. And so what he did was he put two Greek words together, nostos, which means homecoming, and the Greek word algos, which means pain or distress. And he did this because he was coming across these mercenary soldiers from Switzerland, and they had kind of like a desirable ache in their person to go home. And it was actually getting them sick. So they were thinking about home and how good it was compared to their current context. And that desire to go back home was causing them pain. Pain because what was before them was not home. So, you know, you thought about better days. You thought about home. And they knew at that time they couldn't go back. Hence, their nostalgia was a painful ache. For them, at that time, what could never be. So now we hear that word, and nostalgia is sometimes described as a bittersweet longing for the past. Because the right now doesn't seem so good. Just, that's what usually happens when you just look with your eyes. There was actually a study done. This is interesting to me, so I thought you might like it. It was done at Sun Yat-sen University, China. And what they did is they, they tracked students over the course of a month. 
And they would put them in a room and they would turn the temperature up in the room, making the room very cold. And they found out, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but it's interesting, that when they turned the temperature up, making the room very, very cold, the research said that people had more nostalgic feelings about stuff. But when they turned up the heat, they had less feelings about the past in the warmer room. There's a song, Stephen Stills, it's a perfect line. Don't let the past remind us of what we are now. Right? Judy Blue Eyes is the song. Don't let the past remind us of what we are now. Okay, so the first temple, the one that you know, they're longing for, uh, it was built by Solomon, and most of you know it was glorious. This is the jewishvirtuallibrary.org. I'm quoting now. The biblical description of Solomon's temple, also called the first temple, suggests that inside the ceiling was 100 feet, 180 feet long, 90 feet wide, and 50 feet high. The highest point of that temple was actually 20 stories tall. Well, think of that for like that time and that place. 1 Kings 5, still quoting, Solomon spared no expense for the building's creation. He ordered vast quantities of cedar wood from King Haram of Tari. That's 1 Kings 5. Huge blocks of the choicest stone quarried and commanded that the building's foundation be laid with carved stone. Well, think of that. To complete this massive project, he imposed forced labor on his, all his subjects, drafting people for work shifts that sometimes lasted a month at a time. Some 3,300 officials were appointed to oversee. Now, that's just people overseeing the project. Solomon assumed such heavy debts in the building of the temple that he was forced to pay off King Haram by handing over 20 towns in Galilee. So obviously the people knew, who knew about the first temple and seeing what was before him, you know, they were probably down. I imagine the energy was low, hope down, the impossibility of, of the rebuild at least compared to what, what it was, probably kind of depressing, you know. I was trying to think of what, was the, what would be equivalent. It's like, I hate cutting my lawn. So like, I am so down and so distressed, low energy when it's time to cut the lawn. You know, I do it, but I don't like it. And so as you think about it, there's some good things about nostalgia. I mean, there is, because you have good memories that you can draw from. But there's some bad things here. Nostalgia can be seductive. As a, as a parent, you know, what if I had the power to go back to the good old days when my kids were home? Okay, good for us, bad for them. They'll never get a chance to grow up. Nostalgia can make it appear that things now will never be good again. It's kind of helpful for our church, don't you think? Things now will never be like it was back then. Well, part of me says good. Verse 3 God, in his mercy, he asked three questions to make them actually feel and to face up what they're actually feeling. That is so wise of God. You know, let's admit what you need to admit. Don't hide it. Admit your disappointment before God. And because before he gives any encouragement, he's like, all right, you got to think this out. You got to think this through. Now, before we get to the spiritual side, let's just, let me just tell you how good God is in the practical side. Now, do you see verse 8 there? Um, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. Everybody see that there? Now, when you see that as a preacher in a church, <laughs> you know, God owns it all, and then you, you preach it, 
I know that there's probably the strongest possibility that, that there might be something in us, something like, uh, okay, we, we could use some of that silver and gold right now. <laughs> Please, you know? I was thinking about my sister Andrea, and when we were growing up, when you would go into Andrea's room, there was always there was three things that would happen. First of all, she was super loving, so she would always love you. I'm not joking, she, she's great. But she always had lots of money, and she always had lots of candy. You know, this is kid-level money and kid-level candy. So when you'd go into Andrea's room, she was like, come on in, and you, there would be like money there, and she'd help yourself, and there'd be candy there, and I'm not exaggerating, help yourself. Just to, just to make the point, when I went home uh, about month and a half ago, you know, it's the same thing. She's, I don't know how she does it, but like, she says, Joe, come here. And she's at her computer and she has this envelope. And sure enough, true to Andrea, there's some money in there. There's some gift cards. And she's like, let me buy you something. And so she bought me these shoes and a few other things. But that's Andrea. And sometimes we think of God like, you know, Andrea. It's like, man, come on, candy, cookies. It's just, come on, what do you need? But I have another relative and I'm not going to say their name. And and if you're like, okay, let's say that like it's the end and you're like, the only way to get out of the end is like, can I have a dollar? Give me a dollar so I can get out of the end. They would be like, and I'm trying so hard not to say their name and I'm not going to do it. But they would be like, well, let's think about this for a minute. <laughs> do you, have you checked all your pockets? Uh, okay. What about change? You know, I usually find a lot of change in the, it's like, okay. And then sometimes we think of God like that. He's better than Andrea. He's far, he's not greedy. I mean, look at the world. There's so much plush, if you would, in the world. So let me give you just a little bit of the backstory. King Darius is king, all right? Okay, no, no, no big deal there. That's King Darius, he's king. This comes from Ezra chapters 5 and 6. The people of God start to rebuild the house of God. Ezra makes the point that the prophets of God, so there's Zechariah and there's Haggai, they just keep preaching and help encourage them. They're actually helping them. And so the building is going up. A few weeks into it, the, the, the governor of Trans-Euphrates and his associates, the Bible makes that clear, they want to know, you know, those Christian questions, who authorized this temple? Okay, so they ask God's people, who said you could do that? They told the truth. But... What happened was, there's kind of like hostility there, and they wanted to know the names. This is, you know, I want to know the names of all the people, all the men who are rebuilding the temple. Okay? And then Ezra 5, verse 5, says this, but the eye of God was watching over the elders of the Jews. So all the people on the list, God was watching over them. So the governor of the trans-Euphrates, he writes to King Darius and essentially says, the people are building the temple. Is that okay? Because we don't think it's okay. Implication, you better stop them. Very, very human. Now, in the letter, they said, the Israelites told them that King Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the house and he would supply what was needed. And he was even going to return the gold and the silver that King Nebuchadnezzar um, took from them. Hence the verse 8. So they asked King Darius, check the royal archives. Isn't this like, check the records? Did this really happen? Was this really true? And that's what King Darius did. And a scroll was found to prove that everything that the people of God said was true. A, because God had said it. B, they gave truth in their explanation. And so King Darius wrote back to the governor of the trans-Euphrates and, and listen to what he said. He said it was true, but then he adds this. Moreover, 
I hereby decree what you, the governor there, are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. This is the Bible. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, olive oil. And wine is festive, okay? So there's a little bit more than just bread and water. As requested by the priest in Jerusalem, must be given to them daily without fail. So that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defiles this edict, okay, anything tries to stop it, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or any people who lifts a hand to change this decree or destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. So that is absolutely incredible. Look how much God wants sins to be forgiven. Look how much he wants the temple to be rebuilt so his presence can be enjoyed. Foreign money. Foreign money. And not just a little bit of foreign money. Daily needs lavishly met. So there was a practical and visual encouragement from God to them. You see that little part? Whatever they need. I mean, that's a kid's dream. You go into a restaurant, whatever you want. You go into a, whatever you want. This great earthly king, probably the greatest at the time, decreed that God's people would have all their financial and material and provisional supplies they needed to complete the work. This is Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Okay, so practically, right, visually, they are given tremendous encouragement. Now, just a little application here. One of the biggest questions of any project, any initiative, any venture, any ongoing institution is what? What is one of the biggest questions? It's, will there be enough? Will there be enough money? Will there be enough supply? Will there be enough support? Will there be enough money? Will there be enough money? <laughs> it's, it's almost one of the most tormenting questions for humanity. But God here says through a foreign king, oh, there's going to be plenty. Now get to work. There's going to be plenty. So get to work. There's plenty because God wants people's sins to be forgiven. He wants people to be in his presence. He wants that temple to be salt and light in that Old Testament world. He wants people to know that sins are forgiven through substitute, a sacrificial system. And he wants them to know, and we'll get to this, Lord willing, next time, but more so, more so here now, he wants them to know that there's coming a day when that system will be done and complete in one person. So if God wants to use pagan money to supply his people, silver and gold, which already belongs to him, verse 6, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, and God proves it to them by giving it to them. Okay, that's the practical sign. We'll, we'll be done here in a moment, the spiritual side. Okay, because even with all those resources, because we know this, even with all those resources, the people were down about what they saw. Verse 3, it 
does it seem like nothing? Do you see that word nothing in the Hebrew as was not? A literal, literal translation? In other words, the complete opposite of the foreign temple. Does it seem like nothing is even there? Verse 4, and yet be strong, right? It's like God saying, come on, come on, and look at the chain of command that he follows. First, he says it to the governor. Then he says it to the high priest. Then he says it to the people, be strong. And this is under the spiritual because when God says to them, be strong and work, the important reason that God gives is not this. It's not work because that's how you get things done. It's not work because, you know, you will feel better if you do. And it's not work and prove everybody wrong. No, you see it there. Work for I am with you, declares the Lord. Okay, I don't know about you, but next to hearing from God, your sins are forgiven, Joe. Is there anything greater than God is with you? Emmanuel? That is true for every Christian. God is with us. Okay, what if I do X? In Christ, you know what? He's with you. What if I do Y? And I keep doing Y for like a long, long time. God is with you. Don't make this about you. And you know, Christian, when you leave here, he's with you. And when you come back, he's with you. When you do that and there and over there. The reality here is that the Lord God is very active in these people's lives. This is the active living presence that is enabling the work to get done. That's the motivation. So, think with me. They do not deny the reality of their present situation at all. The mounds of rubble, the contrast between what was and what is, it is daunting in many ways. But God places these facts right before them in the context of an even greater fact that the Lord Almighty who owns all the gold and silver, the Lord Almighty who owns the king's heart in his hand, the Lord Almighty who gives you power and agency in your life and those of you are weak, those of you are burdened, the Lord Almighty is with us. I mean, you, you want to say, hey church, it's true of us too. He's with us too. Verse 5, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And so once again, and this is where we'll zip up, God shows incredible compassion and wisdom. When his people had the feelings of nostalgia, they went back to a certain point in history, okay? They went back to 500 something BC and the building of the temple. But they didn't go far enough because what God does, he takes them farther back, verse 5, and reminds them of the covenant that he made with them when he rescued them out of Egypt. Okay, what was the covenant? God promised this. This is in a nutshell. I'm going to make Israel a holy kingdom of priests and they will spread my blessing and glory to all the nations. First blessing, your sins can be forgiven. Second blessing, God is with you. Verse 5, my spirit remains among you. I haven't changed my mind. So don't fear. Because by rights, they broke the covenant time and time again. At any time, God would have said, we're done. But God made it true way back in Abraham. He's like, I'm going to keep the covenant for you. I'm going to keep substituting myself for you. In essence, this is the Old Testament version of being justified. That through the merit of God... The merit of God and not their good works, they don't need to fear. They just need to work. And of course, for the Christian, this is all pointing forward to Jesus because Jesus will do for us what we would not and could not do. And here, 
It is God himself doing the same thing. The same thing. Okay, so here's some application. Grace is abounding. On every level, God is ministering to his people. He's leaving nothing untouched. He's leaving nothing to chance. It's all on him in so many ways. Even their work is being energized because he is with them. He is with them. Which takes us to our final point. And like I said, we're not going to get in there. Revelation. But if you look at verses 6, 7, 8, 9, what do you see there? I mean, that phrase, the desire of all nations. Greater than the temple. Right? The shaking, what happened at the resurrection, or or excuse me, the crucifixion. Jesus is all over that passage. and, And Lord willing, next time we'll get to it. Okay. God is with us. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, will you keep persuading us that you are with us and you are for us and Christ is in us and everything is yours and therefore we are, we are in Christ so all is ours. Do this, God, so that we would rest in his suffering and death and that we would do the work of ministry in love and reverence and not out of fear or even status. This is not too hard for your power and it matches all your promises. Finally, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed for a few minutes. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestatchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in His Church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 